1: If you love Push Black's Black History Year,
0: you'll love our newest podcast called Two Minute Black History. In only two minutes, you'll hear little known stories about our people and reclaim the knowledge we need to take action and advance our community. To move towards the future, you've got to look to the past. Learn the history you didn't get in school. Tune in to Two Minute Black History. Every Tuesday through Friday, right on the Black History Your Feed and wherever you listen to podcasts. Let's begin with the story. In the beginning, there was only none. The primal ocean of chaos. Dormant in those waters lay a god, a mere seed, waiting for his moment to emerge. Through his will alone, he pushed through the chaos and named himself Ra. And by way of his birth, according to this Egyptian myth, the universe was born. From Ra came other gods, and from Ra's tears came mankind. But after the passage of many ages, man turned on their creator, schemed to overthrow their god-king. This incited the wrath of Ra. With the council of gods, he concluded that mankind must pay for its sin. He concluded that punishment could only come through an apocalypse. I'm Jay from Push Black, and you're listening to Black History Year whether etched in hieroglyphics on Egyptian tombs or orated from the Yoruba people through generations ancient legends of gods live on fueling the human imagination many thinkers like Adrian Marie Brown have said that imagination creates our reality which raises the question is mythology more than fiction like ra have myths pushed beyond the waters of fantasy to give rise to reality, and even activate its end. Today's guest says yes, it has that power and much, much more. By fusing art and activism, she's created strategies to survive the end of times. Lee Sumter is a mythologist, eco-activist, and multidisciplinary artist who is confronting earthly challenges like racial injustice, food shortages, war, and other atrocities through what she calls the art of survival. Using DIY media, Afrofuturism, and gameplay to cultivate eco-awareness and community action, she's exploring real and imagined existential threats to mind, body, and spirit, while also offering creative solutions in the here and now. Stay tuned for an interview that'll make you question reality as you know it, and provide the tools we need to survive an apocalypse. First up, another myth from ancient Egypt about a cobra goddess whose power of protection lived on even in death. Check this out.
2: He desperately needed her protection. She was the most powerful deity and the only one he could trust with his life. How he paid homage to her is legendary, and one of the reasons we still provide offerings to our ancestors today. Wajjet, the cobra goddess of ancient Egypt, was strikingly beautiful and powerful. The pharaoh depended on Wajjet's powers for protection, so he paid homage to her by including her in the design of his royal diadem. The crown was designed to look like a cobra about to strike, acknowledging Wajjet's deadly might. But the symbol did more than protect the pharaoh's life. It protected him after death. Statues and paintings of the rearing cobra were used to decorate the inside of the pharaoh's tomb to protect it from grave robbers. The symbol also appeared in the Book of the Dead, implying that Wadjet held some role in assisting the pharaoh's spirit through Duat, the Underworld. Across the world, it's still a common practice to decorate our ancestors' graves with symbols and objects meant to guide them in the spirit realm. Practice consistently honoring our ancestors, be it with altar offerings or visiting their graves. These offerings work to protect our ancestors and provide them
0: with ease. Lee, what does black liberation look like to you?
1: I think for me, you know, um, I work in the arts and I work in the field of mythology and for me and the work that I do, I feel that it's always centered on the power of the imagination, right? The power of art and mythology to create change in the world. And I feel like these are things that really begin on that front line of any any fight, right? Any any struggle really begins in the mind first, and so I believe that what black liberation looks like for me is a liberated mind. You know, a, a mind that is free to dream and to create and to imagine endless possibilities. Regardless of you know the, the state of the world we, we live in that often holds us back and, and pushes us down and oppresses us in so many ways, body, mind, and spirit, black liberation is the, the freedom to dream.
0: That resonates with me um, in many ways. That piece about the freedom to, to dream and create and imagine uh, is key within that as well, right? That understanding that you mentioned that there are forces that have uh, prevented us from doing so in order to actually practice self-determination, we have to be the ones to imagine what that, what that looks like. So I appreciate that. And I'm curious now, how does your work work towards a vision of Black liberation?
1: I think for me, as a mythologist, it's about creating new myths, you know, creating new stories that we as a people can believe in, um, that put us in the future that we're dreaming of. And, you know, storytelling can be done in so many different ways. And I feel like I am enjoying the The contemporary arts and media that are available uh, to us as creators today in terms of, you know, the ways that stories can manifest, the different platforms that we can use to tell our stories. You know, I'm writing a project um, that is what they call transmedia, right? It's a transmedia narrative because it's being told across multiple platforms and forms of media. So for me, Uh, The story, Graffiti in the Grass, is a story that I'm writing. It's um, an Afrofuturist myth, um, one of apocalypse, you know, of apocalyptic change. And it's set in my hometown of Philadelphia. And it's very much about the future and not in the apocalyptic sense that we are so accustomed to experiencing or being told about, um, being presented through the media, um, everything from Hollywood to the commercials we watch, you know, to the headlines that we read, but thinking about apocalypse as birth, death and rebirth, and really focusing on the possibilities on the hope on that rebirth, that phase of transformation that, um, is always inevitable. It's, it's always going to come, but it's really about having the hope and, um, the stamina to hold on till those moments, and also to make them happen for ourselves. So for me, I'm I'm trying to write transformative stories, um, transformative myths that really immerse readers or participants trying to engage people in narratives through actual um, physical problem solving and, um, you know, creative challenges. And these are all the things that I feel help us to kind of embody a story, you know, and kind of make it our own and actually become a part of that story, live it, you know, like actually not just read it or um, watch it on a screen, but actually live the myth that you're trying to create.
0: That's incredible. Um, And if I'm understanding correctly, one of the stories, I think the, um, I'm sorry, the graffiti one, what's the title of that one?
1: Graffiti in the grass It's actually, uh, yeah, it's a metaphor for crop circles. Um, I'm, I'm very much into crop circles and and graffiti culture. You know, I grew up in the eighties. Um, if I had a chance to do it all over again, I would probably, you know, really try to, uh, get more into graffiti than, you know, um, what I've actually had the experience of in this lifetime. You know, um, it takes a certain kind of artist to be able to really um You know, immerse themselves in that culture, because, as you know, for so long, graffiti was illegal
0: you know yeah. um,
1: to do these kinds of things. Um, but there is something about making your mark in the world um It's not like I'm promoting vandalism or anything, but I do like i'm I'm very much um have always been a fan and enamored with Egyptian culture and um, hieroglyphics and any kind of code or glyph or symbolism or lexicon of any kind you know i'm I'm really a lover of symbols. And so graffiti culture really speaks to me. For those who are unfamiliar, crop circles are these amazing designs that show up in fields. Um, typically, I think wheat or barley fields, but, um, and they can be in other places as well, but um, you know, they show up in a miraculous fashion, um, in a mysterious fashion. People don't know how they're made um, or who's making them that's what really inspires me, you know, and kind of gets my mind going in terms of what is just awesome and, and like wonderful, like something that really inspires wonder in this world for me right now.
0: And I can absolutely understand that. I remember uh, years ago when I first learned about crop circles, uh, that sort of is one of the the avenues to just opening up uh, questions and pathways to seeing. okay, there's a lot of mysteries of this world and of this universe that we can't comprehend, um, but there's something there that uh, perhaps we could go on a journey to to figure out. And so I think um, it's interesting that you bring that in as part of your work, especially around mythology. As it relates to myth, give us some relevant context for Black folks and mythology? What is that connection that we have to mythology?
1: Wow. I mean, it really depends on the individual, you know, to be honest. I think that, you know, we can be Black folks walking on this earth right now in this day and time and really be disconnected um, from that mythology, from the truth, really, that is a part of our history um, as folks who have been achieving Black excellence for millennia, you know? And I think that a big part of, you know, what new mythmakers today are challenged with is like trying to find a mythology that is going to embrace our culture and embrace it in a way where we are inspired and invited to become a part of it, right? So, for example, you think about the mythologies of the um, Egyptians, you know, and Egyptian mythology was not a storybook situation, right? It was a lived mythology. They wholeheartedly believed in the gods and goddesses of their pantheon. You know, they walked among them. Um, they were incorporated into their daily lives and rituals. You know, they um, dictated their, their actions on the living um, playing the you know the earthly dimension because they truly believed that they were working towards immortality. you know that was something they wholeheartedly believed, and it's very similar for the Yoruba culture, you know, and the idea of anyone that is you know connected to the African traditions and religion of Yoruba, it's something that is like if you think about the city, the sacred city of Ileife and how the individuals of that city are living a sacred life on a daily basis. Every minute, every day of their lives is being lived within a certain practice and belief system. And they're just so um, intimately connected to that reality. Um, It's not a mythology um, that is based in story or something that's fictional, but it's actually a mythology that's based in truth. And it actually gives rise to their very reality, you know, the thing that they experience um, on a day-to-day basis. And I think that that's one of the things that, for me as a mythologist, I'm kind of liberated from, um, you know, the, the restriction to kind of practice one dogma or believe in one faith, you know, because mythology is at the root of all religions, you know, um, and I believe that we really, you know— it's hard because when when you think about the state of the world and you know all the violence and things that are happening, um, just there's a lot of darkness right now i think in in the world, and it concerns me, and I think that i mean I think it concerns so many of us, right? I mean that's one of the reasons why I, I decided to study apocalyptic mythologies because um I really was so concerned about the future so you know, even I myself, I'm, I'm trying to, Julian, I'm trying to get more connected um, to the wisdom, um, to the metaphysical reality that uh, any myth could actually be my reality.
0: For the past 20 years, you've enjoyed the refreshing tropical lime flavor of Mountain Dew Baja Blast. So in celebration of this milestone,
2: we're bringing Baja Blast in stores nationwide.
0: And for a limited time with every purchase of Baja Blast, you can collect coins for a chance to get Baja gear or a Taco Bell deal. 2024 is the year of Baja Blast. In stores now. No purchase necessary. Open to US residents 18+. Subject to official rules at bajablast.com and 61524. Void where prohibited. So Lee, when you say wisdom and metaphysical reality, I want to dig deeper there um, and sort of reconcile some of what I think many people think when they hear about mythology. I think um, a lot of folks don't hear wisdom. Uh, a lot of folks hear maybe uh, misunderstanding or naivete when it's like, okay, these pe- people, whoever the people are that created the myth, um, perhaps we're trying to... Um, explain some kind of phenomenon that they didn't have language for, didn't have a scientific understanding of, with sort of the assumption that science that we know today, you know, should have an answer for everything um, that we come across. So I'm curious to what your thoughts on that type of um, perspective is and how that connects with um, your understanding of myth.
1: That's one of the greatest misunderstandings of all that folks that created um, some of these early myths, you know, about you know, um, the the changing of the seasons or the sunrise and sunset, the moon and the stars, all those things, right? These are also some of the same peoples that were able to predict eclipses and um, certain astrological events without the modern technologies and sciences that we function on today. And scientists are baffled today when they think about, like, how did, um these people build these monuments right um these structures that were aligned with certain constellations like they didn't have this and they didn't have that and like you know but they're actually more on the money than some scientists today you know who are just now figuring out and cracking the code of what the ancients already knew so long ago, you know? Um, Or even some of these, quote unquote, um, more primitive tribes or cultures um, that anthropologists have identified.
0: I think about like the Dogon, when you uh, mentioned that in Mali and, into the sort of myth and cosmology around serious don't want to get too deep into that now but that's just what came to mind with there's many of those examples where it's like, okay there's no way they could have done this then uh if, if we couldn't do it now so what what is that all about
1: one of my favorite definitions of mythology um that i often use in quote i'm going to try to paraphrase it but maya darren um an anthropologist and a dancer, an artist in her own right, um, she wrote a book called The Divine Horseman. And she studied uh, the Yoruba religion in in Haiti. And she um, coined this definition of myth. She said, myth is the facts of the mind manifest through a fiction of matter.
0: Hmm. Say say that one more time for us, please.
1: Myth is the facts of the mind made manifest through a fiction of matter. It's not a long definition, but there's so much in there um, to unpack because there is a lot of like metaphysical uh, references or inferences there. And then also, too, you know, this fiction of matter. So it's just like, okay, you know, so how does, you know, how does the material world actually come to be, you know? And so that's where this idea of mythology, this system and framework of belief of a culture, depending on, you know, where you come from or what part of the world you live in and what you believe, that's going to give rise to your actual reality, to your physical reality, you know, and it has to be one that is collectively believed, you know what I mean? That's how a culture kind of operates within a collective mythos. But we also kind of all have our own personal mythology, right? So like, I mean, on another level, you can think about if someone thinks that they are um, you know, the second coming, you know what I mean? There's some people walking around thinking that's the case. They might actually move through life as if that is true. And uh, God help them, <laughs> you know, because they might, they, they're going to get a rude awakening on like, you know, trying to do certain things, you know, or get away with certain things. When you think about black and brown folks and, and, and young kids, right? Um, if they don't believe in themselves, if they think that they're nothing, if they think that they're not smart, if they think that they um, don't have a hope at surviving, even even the realities of their own neighborhood. If they wholeheartedly believe that mythology, right, that apocalyptic mythology that is very real for Black and Brown neighborhoods today, um, then you know it's kind of like a manifest destiny. You know, when I realized that's actually how mythology works, that's when I like, like everything was just bells were ringing in my head where I was just like, you know, this is this is this is what I am. Going to pursue. Because again, you know, you take a degree, everybody kind of finds their own lane, you know, that kind of X that marks the spot that they're going to dig deeper into, you know. And for me, it's, it's the metaphysical elements. And that's kind of where this idea of storytelling and immersive storytelling that can be transformative, you know, where, you know, what we read and what we think and believe actually manifests and becomes our physical reality, you know.
0: And one example that comes to mind for me that I speak with. Um, my team about as we're working on our narrative strategies, it's like there is this um, origin story, this myth that um, whiteness has and that uh, is, I think empowers white supremacy and uh, coloniality in the sense that we're sort of all taught over here that civilization began with the ancient Greeks or the ancient Romans and that they were the ones who created all of these uh, these practices of science this math um, this understanding of the world so if you have the foundation of civilization uh, starting with folks that look white then that leads everyone else that is white regardless of where their direct ancestry came from to be a okay. I can bend the world in a certain way because I'm of that same stock. I am that uh, foundational piece of civilization. I have a duty, like this idea of the white man's burden, to have this duty to uh, go out and uh, and save the the savages or to overcome nature because I have created this this thing, right? And we're taught that black folks did not contribute to that, but the opposite seems to be the case, from my uh, understanding and the research of others. Before us, in terms of you know where the, a lot of that knowledge actually came from uh, in black societies, black cultures, indigenous cultures that was in taken, spun and uh, and built upon by others. And so that, to your point, sort of taking a macro look at that community example you gave, It's like if we are not taught that we are able of creating able to create. Civilizations that we came sort of afterwards and others had to civilize us, uh, then I think that sort of limits what we're able to both do now and imagine in the future. So I'm of the belief that we have a certain origin story, which for us in America, I think is a, our origins are in slavery. For many of us, that's where it starts. But uh, I believe even going to history, getting in touch with a new origin story, a new mythology of how things came to be, um, in addition to those that have existed uh, across time. Uh, is a powerful way, or could be a powerful way of uh, really transforming our now and the future.
1: Yeah, you know, it's funny. As you were talking, um, <laughs> I, I I have to admit that one of the images that popped into my head was the image of Michael Jackson as the scarecrow on the pole in The Whiz. I don't know if you've seen the film. Have you seen the film? I've seen you the
0: image. To. I have not seen the film. Don't tell anybody, though.
1: You know, I'm not going to take anybody's black card today. We won't do that. Um, not, uh, not on your podcast. I won't yeah, do that. Not but, today. Um, I Maybe will next say, time. Next time. But I will say that it's a very important um, image, I think, that relates to what you've said. Because the thing about what he was doing, he played the scarecrow, right? And he was up on this pole. And the crows were Badgering him and oppressing him, right? They would not let him get down off of this here pole, right? They would not let him get down off the pole and he was stuck. And it wasn't until um Dorothy came around, right? And and let him know that all he had to do was was ask for a helping hand and get and get on down. You know, it was like the thing that was standing in between him being a free, um, liberated person was his own mindset. He was believing what the crows told him, right? When we believe another person's narrative of ourselves, right? Um if we believe another culture's history of our people, then we are we're we're going to be in a prison of our own minds, you know? And it's really it's really that simple on one hand, but then it's just that hard because I can speak to this firsthand that one of the hardest things to undo is the damage of a miseducation that was received at a young age. You know what I mean? Um, And, you know, to unlearn um, and then reimagine and teach oneself that there's another way, that there's another possibility. It's almost like a house of cards just collapses because your reality and your belief of yourself and, your, and the world that you're in and your place in it was based on a false narrative of who you are and where you came from. And so, you know, that's why we need, again, we need these new myths. We need new myth makers and storytellers to not only reimagine the future and putting ourselves in our brightest tomorrows and those possibilities of what that could be, but it's also about reaching back to our past And bringing it forward to help us remember what we've forgotten, right? And, and a lot of that is, um, this idea of Sankofa, which is often used in Afrofuturism and, and, you know, in Black liberation movements in general, this idea of going back to get it, right? Going back to the past to retrieve that wisdom, um, that knowledge, um, that love, you know, that love of ourselves and, um, our community and bringing it back to the present so that we can build a better future, you know, based on the truth that is actually aligned with our highest possibilities.
0: I'm curious for you and your work, was there a certain perhaps event or a bit of information? What led you to a realization around um, the need for what we're talking about? Today
1: Well, you know for me um, it's a couple things. one was you know, as a youth, I was exposed to an apocalyptic film. It was more like a um, like Monday night movie type of thing. Um, it was called the day after i don 't know if you recall the film, but it was basically about nuclear holocaust. you know what if you know the Russians dropped a bomb on us kind of thing um, and they showed the devastation of of nuclear fallout, you know the blast and everything um, and I was young when I was you know I wasn't really supposed to be watching it, and I didn't even watch the film from start to finish, but th- the scenes that I saw changed my life forever, you know because those those scenes um became seeds in my mind right like um of of darkness and destruction and you know thinking about you know, gosh, is is this going to happen to us, you know? Um, and so at a very young age, I became very concerned, um, downright horrified, fearful of this apocalyptic future. Um, and that then stayed with me. You know, it was always kind of a, a dark undercurrent in, in my spirit. Uh, I was, I mean, I was a happy person. You know, I would say looking back on my childhood and my teens and all that stuff, um, you know, I didn't learn until later. Right. Because like therapy, my, my degree is also in psychology. I'm, I'm not a stranger to therapy. Um, I definitely am a fan of it. You know what I mean? Especially in these days and times. Um, but I feel like I learned um, through my own study of psychology and my own um, therapy um, that I've, I've been receiving since, you know, a uh, teenager that I catastrophize, you know, it's actually a thing that people can do, you know, um, some people have OCD, some people have different things, you know, that they're dealing with, right, and their mental health. And for me, it was um, doing this thing called catastrophizing. And I would, I would think about, you know, like these huge catastrophes that could happen, because I was already so fixated, um, you know, in my unconscious mind about this possibility. And I think that, when I got older and I learned about mythology, my father introduced me to Joseph Campbell through PBS. I mean, I'd already loved Star Wars, but I didn't realize that it was Joseph Campbell that actually informed um, the kind of uh, mythological framework that George Lucas based Star Wars on, you know? And so when I started to put all these things together, I realized that, you know, I could learn from. Um, these stories. Because not all these stories were about the end of the world. Some of them were about surviving the end of the world, right? But when you think about a series that goes on for season after season, and and these people are in an apocalypse that is lasting for years, um, you learn how to survive for the short term and the long term. You know what I mean? Um, And I was just so fascinated by that because that was my way of figuring out how to learn um, that if this was a reality that I in fact, believed I was going to face, how could I still go about my daily life, but also try in the meantime to quietly get prepared? And I say quietly because you probably already know that those who really take to preparing for um, disasters and the end of the world, so to speak, are not really uh, viewed by uh, society as sane (laughs) or reasonable people, you know what I mean? they get a bad rap, you know what I mean? And 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 I've watched some of those shows like the Doomsday Preppers on like, I think it was Nat Geo, National Geographic or the History Channel or something like that. And, you know, they, they always get um, the folks that are on one side of the spectrum, but there's also everyday people that are concerned about these things, you know what I mean? And that's when like books like Octavia Butler's Power of the Sower um, really helped to um, normalize this idea that you don't have to be like a doomsday prepper that you know um, has this bunker and doesn't see the light of day and like you know is just really kind of antisocial and distrusting of individuals. But what about folks who are actually just everyday people that are trying to survive? That's why I love like stories like uh, Terminator, even though they get really sensational on one end. Think about how this is a single mom, Sarah Connor, who. She was just a waitress minding her home her own business. You know what I mean? And then all of a sudden, a machine comes from the future, um, lets her know that her son is going to be, you know, the savior of humanity. And like, you know, she's got to get on this mission all of a sudden. And then when we see her, by the time we get to... One of those last installments, I mean, she's just this badass that nobody wants to mess with. You know what I mean? I love stories like that, that take everyday people who are reluctant survivors, and it turns them into badass warriors, you know?
0: In many ways, I think that um, the nature of Black existence in America actually requires A certain extent of that that doomsday prepper energy, just on a day to day, as you were mentioning, not um, in the sense that the entire world is going to end, but many of us are just like one step away, one accident away from okay. Now I can't pay my water bill. You know, I might need to store up some water. Uh, (laughs) uh, One step away from okay, my life has just changed because I got this. Ticket can't pay it now. We're one step away from uh, a lot of a lot of disastrous events happening. That's something I think about often. People were looking at me wild uh, at the beginning of the pandemic when I started stocking up on uh, <laughs> on a bunch of things that I'm not going to get into right now. But before people <laughs> knew what it was. But it's uh, it's one of those things that I had that mentality myself uh, prior to that, so I was already sort of far along. But I say that to say that um, even outside of a pandemic, like disaster situation, many of us are are living in those situations where that type of attention is is needed. So I'm curious, you know, um, are we living right now in a, a apocalyptic or post apocalyptic uh, scenario in some ways? Uh, what's, what's what says yes, what says no about? the ways and the conditions we live in uh, as a people overall.
1: We're definitely living in an apocalyptic world um, and have been for some time now. And like to quote sunrise. He, he says that, you know, the world's already ended. Don't you know that? Like, you know, it's already after the end of the world. And um, I think that that's also like understanding that we're, we're kind of living through the death of, Um, a certain sense of humanity, the way people um, don't treat each other um, with equity and compassion and empathy and all these things, you know. Um, And he was specifically talking about Black and Brown folks, you know, that like, hey, um, Earth is no place for the Black man, um, Black people. And we need to think about exodus, you know, off world, like, you know, really considering um, taking our things and packing it up and hitting the road for another planet you know the pandemic showed us that we're literally a paycheck away from you know just starving p- poverty so many of us are just trying to trying to get by but it's not just about the economy it's so much else because it really exasperated um, so many other conditions that were already like at the tipping point you know in terms of this violence this violent culture that we live in and you know, how do we survive that? And I think that the pandemic was what they call an NDE, you know, a near-death experience um, that we all experience as a culture. And some of us didn't make it out. It, it's interesting because the pandemic affected folks in different ways. Some people who still haven't, you know, COVID hasn't caught up with them yet. Like, they don't even know. But, like, I can speak for, look, when I got COVID, I was I was really concerned. You know what I mean? I even had the shots and everything. But I was still just like, am I going to make it? You know, um, it's, it's kind of a, it's, it's a scary feeling. But then on top of that, you know, I think it makes us really reach for that thing outside of ourselves, right? Like when we're in an existential dilemma, when we're in a crisis, we always reach for something higher than ourselves. So I think the pandemic helped a lot of people reconfigure their priorities in terms of like, you know, I know it helped me. I love the city of Philadelphia, but I, w- I was in a very, very violent carjacking um, maybe a year ago that changed my life, you know. And this idea of like PTSD was like these four letters that um, I knew what they meant, but to actually experience it, I really say prayers for everyone who has experienced PTSD and is living with it. And I'm not just talking about veterans, you know, and folks. Um, that have been through war, but people that have been through any kind of violence, um, you're you're always constantly looking over your shoulder. You know, your nerves are always kind of on edge, and um, it it makes it very hard to go about your daily life. It really truly does, and it also makes you um, be. You know, I, I have this gratitude um, just for the simplest things. You know what I mean? For my connections with my family. Um, you know, just to know that I could have not made it out of that situation. It could have been lights out for me and that was it, but I made it out. And now I feel like my purpose in this work around this art of survival um, is even more, um, it has more meaning to me now than it did before, Mm. for sure.
0: Wow. I could definitely see that. I'm sorry that that happen to you that's i can ima- only imagine you know how that yeah. weighs on you on an ongoing basis and how that influences yeah. your your work with survival um and to that point in terms of uh, the survival piece on a uh, day to day and future one of your pieces of work from my understanding is interactive experience or piece there's some element to it that involves actual maps but it takes place in the future and it's like these are escape routes to get out of Philly or something like that. Am I accurate in my
1: understanding? (laughs) What am I talking about? (laughs) No, I appreciate you. Well well you're actually talking about graffiti in the grass, right? Um because it's the same story, right? So in that same way I was talking about how graffiti in the grass is transmedia. You know, where the narrative is being told across multiple platforms. So, this idea of an escape room, right? Um, I don't know if you've ever experienced an escape room or been through one yourself, but I've been through a couple. And um, I've been inspired by um, the format, right? Of like this live gaming challenge to escape a situation, right? There's so many great films that are about escapes, you know, Escape from New York, you know, Um, there's um, like this idea of, like what you know how because for me it's always like how can i gamify this idea of the art of survival right how can i actually get people interested in it because you got to understand julian like and and i guess you do because you're a bit of a prepper yourself but like my friends you know they were not they were not drinking the kool-aid you know and even if they were aware that i was actually speak in some truth, a lot of people find it much easier to deny that truth so they can just enjoy their day. You know, nobody wants to think about survival and preparing for the worst, right? But the thing is, you know, so many of us watch these films. We watch The Walking Dead. We watch, you know, some of these, um, you know, even movies, you know, series like Snowfall that deal with, like, you know, surviving in the inner city and, 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 um, dealing with that, that lifestyle. It can be any lifestyle, but the idea is, you know, for example, so many situations with climate change and ecology, um, you know, global warming, we're dealing with floods and earthquakes and you name it. But um, I did this event called Art of Survival, Agents of Escape with um, a group called Theater in the X, a Black-led theater company that I work with here in Philly. And one of the things we did was dramatize these scenarios that helped us figure out like, what to do to escape a flood. Because this was real things that were happening. These were in the headlines, right? Um, like, How do you do that? What do you do? when, um, you know, your car is being submerged and you're stuck inside it? You know, what do you do when there's an active shooter? Um, you know, there's just like we know about stop, drop and roll when we when we um, deal with a fire in our homes. You know, we used to be um, kind of schooled on that. The firemen would come to the school and we'd have the assembly and we would learn about this or whatever. But now it's like we have different threats, you know. So now it's run, hide, fight. You know, that's about we got to learn these things because of active shooters and the and the epidemic of gun violence that is just devastating this country, you know? And so, yeah, I mean, we got to think. So for me, it's like, yes, the map, I think about like, okay, escape from New York, what, what would be the escape from Philly? You know what I mean? Um, how will we get out of here if it was, say, a pandemic or a viral situation, or maybe it was like civil unrest and everybody was going postal and losing their minds, you know what I mean? And trying to break down doors and rob your family, like thinking about, you know, how we would, how we would deal with it. So there's a lot of practical things we could do, you know, like
0: just know your emergency
1: exits when you walk in a room, like just note those exits when you walk in the room. Or even like when you go on, you know, you go on a bumble date or something. And like nowadays it's like, you got to give the information to your friends or you could end up, off the map you know what i mean and never heard from again so there's just little things we can do and then there's big things we could do but as long as we're doing something you know
0: absolutely and i really appreciate the way that you are um, using art to um, transmit those messages and engage folks it's it's amazing to me because my understanding of art and culture and the way that uh, our people have engaged for centuries is is not it's rarely just art for art's sake, right? It's a matter of exactly. uh, passing down culture and practices and values, survival tools, spiritual tools um, and connections. So it's really um, great to see and hear how you're doing that with your art and, and using some of those same practices to um, to to reach some of those same ends. So that's, that's really dope. Thinking of the future as it relates to The black community. What should we be thinking and doing as we go forward in our lives to uh, to reach a future that we actually exist in, (laughs) actually exist in, and and thrive and and survive in?
1: I really believe it's about our mind state. You know, it's about hope. I mean, I hate to sound cliche, Julian, but I really do believe that. People who are hopeless do not dream. And like I was saying before, at the top of this interview, it's like, you know, the freedom to dream and to imagine our possibilities and to know that those possibilities are endless is really how we survive this present state. You know, that's how we move through it and overcome it and create a new reality of our own design. You know, one that we dream up Uh, Together, and I think that also for each individual, it's about our mindset. You know, uh, again, it's like we also have to think about ourselves. Like, are we ready for the end? Like, if the end were to come tomorrow, but are we also ready for a new beginning? And how do we kind of lean into the 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 fact that we could actually? be in charge of that right we could actually be masters of our own destiny because a lot of us are feeling like you know the world's just going to hell in a handbasket and this is just this is just what it's going to be you know what i mean and we're just going to ride it out but what if we actually could take control of the wheel and steer our future in the direction that we want to go you know like we have to believe that that's possible you know we can't we can't give into We have to lean into the imagination. You know, I'm all about that.
0: Lee Sumter, I appreciate your your time. I appreciate the work you do. Thank you for joining us on Black History Year.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: That was Lee Sumter, founder of Myth Media Studios. At Push Black, We agree with Marcus Garvey when he said, A people without knowledge of their past, history, origin, and culture is like a tree without roots. We believe telling empowering stories on Black life and history can build a more liberated Black future. Being here with us lets us know you probably feel like that's important too. You matter. Your choice to be here matters. It lets us know that you value this work and you make Push Black happen with your contributions at blackhistoryyear.com. Most people do five or 10 bucks a month, but really everything makes a difference. Thank you for supporting the work. Black History Year is a production of Push Black, the nation's largest nonprofit black media company. Our team includes Tariq Alani, Brooke Brown, Tasha Taylor, Somalia Rahman, Amber Davis, and Darren Wallace. Producing this episode, we have Sydney Smith and Lynn Webb for Push Black, and Ronald Young Jr., who also edits the show. Black History Year's executive producers are Lily Workna and me, Julian Walker. Peace.